where does confidence come from? You see, somebody, I was at an event recently, and somebody asked me, they said, have you always been like this? I guess I was kind of free and easy in that moment, and said, have you always been like this? And I could honestly say, no, I have not. When my wife and I got married, uh, a few weeks later, she said, I did not realize I was marrying somebody who is kind of goofy and relaxed and funny. So up until that point, she thought that I was very serious, very uh, studious, kind of nerdy, and she thought, okay, well, I'm going to be in for a, a pretty serious life from here on out. And then after we got married, she found out, no, he's actually a, a pretty relaxed, pretty free and easy guy. When I was in, but that had also happened when I was in college. I, in, I went to a small college of about 600 students, so everybody kind of knew each other, and a friend of mine started dating a girl and this whole new group of friends, and that, somebody said, you know I didn't realize you were a fun guy. At the time, I kind of took it as a point of pride. But I was, there was something about safety that I needed before I kind of, kind of let loose. That for me, confidence was coming from this kind of, this point of safety. And so people like would go, oh, he's actually fairly confident. But we sure didn't know it. And honestly, I didn't know it until I felt safe with Emma. I was pretty serious before we got married. You know, in college, until I felt safe, I was pretty kind of close to the vest. I've been thinking about confidence because we're looking at a passage this week where Jesus is on trial. But we live in a world in which confidence seems to be everything. Everywhere you look, people say, how do you raise kids with confidence? How do you raise kids who are self-confident? Because that's going to be the ticket to them getting ahead in life. Or maybe it's, here's how you can personally have more confidence so you can make bigger strides in your career. Your job will go better if you've got confidence. So here's some tricks to act confident, to make other people think that you're confident, to get confident. We live in a world that says confidence is everything. And today we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 27 at Jesus' trial and what Jesus' trial has to do with us and confidence. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. This Easter season, we've been looking at Easter through Matthew's eyes. And last week, John was sharing with us the Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, after Jesus was arrested. But Matthew is a book that's written to a Jewish audience. It's sometimes easy to miss, and we just kind of flatten out all the Gospels. But you see, Mark is like, give me the action. It's bam, bam, bam. Things happen, things happen, things happen. Written to a Gentile audience, like lots of facts, lots of history, Details about women, details about poor that we don't find in the because that's, that's his particular concern. And then we get to Matthew. Matthew was written by a, a Jewish former tax collector, disciple of Jesus. It starts with how Jesus is cut from the line of Abraham and David. And the whole thing seems to be written to a Jewish audience with this special concern for them. And we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. Early in the morning, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word, and I pray that you will help me to uh, preach it clearly and that you will transform us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The story, so... 
What John talked about last week was Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the Jewish leaders, in the middle of the night, they decide to put Jesus to death because of blasphemy. He claimed to be God. And then we get to verse 27, or chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, and it says that they have to make that decision again in the morning. The reason is because what they did the night before was totally illegal. They weren't supposed to make any kinds of rules or any kind of rulings or any kind of judgments in the middle of the night. So what they'd done was illegal, and so they had to wait until morning, but they did permanently, okay, this is what we're doing. So now it's legal. And they said they made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. The Jewish leaders aren't allowed to put anybody to death, and so not only have they ruled that Jesus should be put to death for blasphemy, but they have to make plans because the Roman governor does not care about blasphemy. He's not going to put Jesus to death for blasphemy. So the the Jewish leaders have to try and make this sham legal the next morning. They also have to make it stick coming up with plans. And we're going to see those plans here in a second. So they've changed they're, they're going to change the charge for Jesus. But then verse 3 changes the scene because Judas, when Judas who had betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. I find this scene just totally heartbreaking. Because we usually look at Judas as, what a traitor, what a disappointment. Can you believe that he did this? And we've seen in the past couple weeks that Peter and the other disciples denied Jesus, deserting him too. But here, this is heartbreaking because Judas sees what they're going to do, realizes that it's wrong, is overcome with remorse. But instead of going like Peter to see Jesus one more time, he tries to undo what he had done and filled with despair, kills himself. There's, this, there's a difference between worldly sorrow and remorse and godly repentance. Judas can do what you've done, but nothing can change the ruling of the Jews. So Judas, filled with remorse, goes and kills himself. But what I want you to notice is that the, the Jewish leaders, they don't dispute the charge that Jesus is innocent. And they, they're t- okay with trying to just cover up what they've done. They call it blood money. Like They don't even say this is, this is legitimate what we've done. Blood money. We can't use this in the temple. Figure out some other use for it. And then, so they're not, they're not even fighting the charge of innocent, uh, him saying that Jesus was innocent. How do we cover up the thing that we've done? And then it gives us this detail. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. This, this like combines prophecy from Zechariah and from Jeremiah, and it was kind of a common thing in the Bible when they're combining several prophecies, say the name of the most well-known. And so they say that fulfills the word spoken by Jeremiah, but there are multiple fulfillments that are happening here. 
us to the, re- this is Jesus, not an accident. It's one of the reasons that we call this series Destined, because Jesus believed and acted the, in the entire book of Matthew as if this is my destiny. You guys aren't in control of some tragedy that's happening to me. This is fulfilled God's plan. So Judas is filled with remorse, and instead of repenting, despairs and kills himself. Then we pick up in verse 11, when Jesus goes on trial. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed over Jesus to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. So this is where the Jewish leaders changed. They had started and found Jesus guilty in the night for blasphemy, but they realized that's not going to stick, and that's not going to get Jesus killed. And so to Pilate, the Roman governor, they say that Jesus says he's the king of the Jews. Jesus is a rival to Caesar, and we can't have that. That would be disloyal to the Roman emperor charge. The governor is amazed because he's never seen somebody who doesn't answer any of the charges, who just stands there silent before him. And then he tries to figure out a way around it. And so he brings before them a well-known prisoner. The other Gospels tell us that he was a, an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. He was somebody who very clearly was an opponent of Rome. And he was very clearly a challenger to Caesar. And so he brings him out. And this translation says, says that his name is Jesus Barabbas. Many of the earliest manuscripts said Jesus Barabbas. It doesn't matter when, whether his name was Jesus Barabbas, which was super common at the time for somebody to be named Jesus. But in this moment, he brings out Barabbas and he, Jesus, and he says, his, and before he, he, then he asks them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called the Messiah. While he's sitting there, his wife comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with this man. Your translation might say innocent. It might say righteous. This man is perfect. Don't have anything to do with him. This is a sham. This is not what you should be trying. He asks again, who do you want me to release to you? And they say, release Barabbas. What am I going to do with Jesus then? I mean, at this point, the, the trial's just gone off the rails. 
Like the charges have changed. He's brought out two people and says, who do you want me to release? And then he's like, what judgment do you want me to give to this man? Like there's, there's no like clear line of what Pilate is doing here aside from trying to get rid of responsibility and get rid of this, get rid of this Jesus. The people yell, crucify him. He's like, what crime has he committed? What kind of court case does the, the judge ask, what are you even charging him with? And the people don't answer that. They just yell even louder, crucify him. So Pilate washes his hands, brings that statement up again. And of this man's blood, it is your responsibility. And the people answer, his blood is on us and on our children. Verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 26 says, Then he released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This flogging is like, this was like two death sentences. A lot of prisoners would die during the flogging. And so he basically ripped all of the skin and most of the muscle off of Jesus' back. The most brutal thing that he could do. Instead of, he gives him two death sentences right here. So what we have is, what I want to show you is that the call in this is to our responsibility for Jesus' perfection. The call in this story, in Jesus' trial, is to trade our responsibility for Jesus' perfection and find confidence. Three responses to Jesus' trial that ground our confidence. One, recognize Jesus' perfection. That's what's happening by person after person in this story. Everybody is finding that Jesus is innocent, that Jesus is perfect, that Jesus is righteous. Nobody challenges that. It starts with Judas saying, I have betrayed innocent blood, and the Jewish leaders don't even challenge it. The Jewish leaders don't even challenge it. Judas and the religious leaders know Jesus is innocent. And then Pilate's wife comes and says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. Pilate goes before the people and says, what is he even guilty of? And then Pilate asks, then Pilate says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And so whether it's Judas the religious leaders, Pilate, Pilate's wife, and the Jewish crowd, everybody recognizes that Jesus is innocent and Jesus is perfect in his trial. This all was happening during Passover weekend when all of Israel would be absolutely obsessed with finding perfect lambs. That's what they would do every year is look for spotless, perfect lambs. That's been the search of Israel's history. Always looking for a perfect lamb because that's what they have to have. Reconciled and made right with God. And so here in this trial, everybody recognizes this is a spotless lamb right here. Nobody challenges it at that day. I read a book years ago where a missionary was telling the story of the Bible the way that he would tell that in Papua New Guinea with the tribes that he worked with. People with no background in the Bible. And one moment stuck with me from that book, is he reaches a moment where he's talking about Jesus' death and how in Israel's history, whenever it came time for a sacrifice, they would go looking for a lamb that was spotless. And when they did, they would say this Greek word, telestai. It is finished. We found the lamb. And in this moment, everybody recognizes we found it. 
We found the one perfect man who is innocent, who is right. When we come to Easter weekend, we are supposed to look at Jesus like and say, Jesus is innocent. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is righteous. And so when we find other places in the gospel that, that tell us that we trade places with Jesus, we're actually trading places with an innocent, perfect, righteous person. And we can have confidence that nobody's ever going to bring a charge against Jesus. Nobody's ever going to bring a charge against us because Jesus was perfect. It's the spotless lamb that we needed. And so each of us look at this and go, okay, Jesus is not like me. Jesus is not like you. A few steps better, a little bit more enlightened. Jesus was perfect. The second response to Jesus' trial is to see our own responsibility. You see, this story is filled with people say, trying to buck responsibility. This isn't my fault. This isn't my responsibility. This is your responsibility. It's what the Jewish leaders told Judas. That's not our responsibility that you betrayed innocent blood. That's your responsibility. The Jewish leaders can't put Jesus to death, so they have to put it off onto Pilate. Pilate tries to put the blame on the people and says, what do you guys want me to do? Pilate then goes even farther and washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And then the people say, okay, yeah, we will be responsible. This is our fault. This is us doing it. You see, in the Jesus trial, everybody recognizes that Jesus is innocent and everybody finds themselves responsible. Everybody. One of the unfortunate things in Christian history is that Christians throughout history have thought that in this moment, that means the Jews are guilty. They've actually missed the point. You see, Christian leaders and churches throughout the generations have said, we can persecute Jews because of what they did to Jesus. And they've missed the fact that everybody, Jewish and Gentile alike, is responsible in this moment. All of us stand guilty before God. His blood is on us. And on our children, it's not the Jews alone. And so everybody in the story is responsible, and everybody in this room is responsible. Each one of us. Romans 3, verse 19. I think brings us to some of the meaning of that moment. Romans 3, verse 19 says, now, what, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In this moment, as everybody is responsible and we find ourselves responsible, our mouths are closed before God. Jesus is innocent and I'm responsible. And I have it. So what should our response at Jesus' trial be when we see responsibility along with everybody else in the world is to be broken and contrite and realize, look what I've done. Look what I've done. And the third response to Jesus' trial is to trade our responsibility for his perfection. You see, at its very heart throughout this, not only does everybody recognize Jesus as perfect, not only does everybody realize that they're responsible, Also, this whole story is set up as a trade. Everything in this story is about a trade. Jesus was traded for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. Jesus was traded with Barabbas, a rebel leader, a rebel threat to the Roman Empire. Jesus was traded by 
peace. This whole story is Jesus is innocent. We are responsible. And Jesus is a trade. You see, if we go into Easter weekend and we get to Good Friday and we just get heartbroken and say, oh, can you believe what people did to Jesus? We've missed the point. This says that this was to fulfill what was prophesied. Absolutely in control of this. And God intended it as a trade of an innocent, perfect person in the place of responsible sinners. And so when we look at Jesus traded for money, traded for a rebellious leader, what we end up finding is Jesus was traded with us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think is the sweetest verse in the Bible. I love John 3.16. It so beautifully encapsulates this gospel, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a trade, not a tragedy. And so instead of just feeling guilty by our sin, we instead trade rags for his riches. For his, we trade our responsibility for his perfection and innocence. God is the one that did this. He was in absolute control, and that makes Easter good news for us. That means that there's nothing that's ever going to bubble up in your life that God didn't know, know about, and that Jesus' perfection is not going to cover. There's not going to be something out there that God didn't realize you were doing. Or there's nothing in your past that God's like, oh, I know about that. No, Jesus is absolutely perfect. We are absolutely responsible. And God intended Easter to be a trade. So God's attitude towards us is not going to change. N.T. Wright comments that on Easter weekend, what is so astounding is all of the accusations you and I are guilty of are the things that kill Jesus. We often think Jesus died for our sins, but all of the accusations they leveled at Jesus, you have claimed to be God or guilty of us who have said there is no God but me. All the accusations that Jesus is setting up his own rival kingdom to Caesar, that's an accusation that's true of me who set up my own rival kingdom towards God. Blasphemy, leading the people astray, all the accusations leveled at Jesus were actually true of us, but this is a trade. And maybe you go, Joe, how can I know for sure that I w- I'm in on this trade? How can I know for sure that I'm trading my responsibility for Jesus' perfection? How can I do that? The story of the Bible is the story that God made the world and he made it good and he made humans and said they are very good be little kings under me, the great king. But instead of living with God as our great king, as, we, as he intended in the world, Adam and Eve and every human after them have said, no, we will, we will set up our own kingdoms. We're going to live our own ways. We're going to do our own things. God, you will not be king over us. The Bible says that God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and said he will one day crush all of his enemies. But instead of leaving us as his enemies, he lived the life that we should live, died the death that we should die, and was raised back to new life. So that all who repent of sin, turning away from it and saying, I will not be a rebel anymore. I I want God for my king. And who trusts Jesus, who lived and died, went on trial for us. Who trust in him alone are brought back in. And instead of just being members of the kingdom, made children of the king. 
And so it is repentance and faith, repentance and trust in Christ where we trade our responsibility for Jesus' perfection. And that's the ground of confidence that we have. It's not just we've been raised better, we've lived in worlds that don't have fear. No, we can actually know that though we are responsible, Jesus is innocent and God sees this as a trade. And so God will never be opposed to us in that same way ever again for those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ. And so if, if you want confidence in your, in your kids, give them the gospel. Give them the gospel so that they can actually be confident that there's nothing in their past and nothing in their present and nothing in their future that's going to change God's attitude towards them. If you want confidence in your own life, stop looking for that within. Stop looking for that when people around you. and Stop looking for that in money and accolades. Look for that in this trade with Jesus who is perfect on our behalf and gives that to us. So then imagine what that looks like. What does that look like in your own life when your confidence is not grounded in your personality, not your gifts, not what other people think about you? Your confidence is grounded in the fact that God is for me and he sees this trait as complete and good. Imagine what it looks like in your family where the the confidence of your family is not in the name that you have in the community, not in the objects that you have in the world, but instead it is grounded in the settled attitude of God towards you and your wife and your kids because we have repented and trusted in Christ. Imagine what that looks like for Belgium and for our region for there to be a church that is grounded in this trade. Trade of the responsible for the perfect. And so then we can begin to reach out and we can begin to love and we can begin to pray and we can begin to partner around the world to see other people know about this. We're not just asking people to do a little bit better. It's instead, trade your responsibility for righteousness. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that you intended Easter to be a trade so that we can know your settled attitude towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.